0: Well, the words that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning are found in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. So if you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, verse 9, we'll actually be reading verse 9 through 20. And then I'll explain what, what the direction we'll be heading with this text this morning. Beginning in verse nine. Now after he had risen on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others. But they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Another ending reads, And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from the east to the west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now, last week I had mentioned that these verses, verses 9 through 20, that that constitute the ending of Mark, um, actually um, are not a part of the original text. Um, In most of our versions, there's these these eleven last 11 verses. And so how are we to explain the presence of this ending? How, how do we know that these were not a part of the original text as it was written by Mark? And if this is there and there seems to be some conflict among scholars, does this mean that the rest of the Bible is untrustworthy? How do we know what is the Word of God and what isn't? How do we know that the Word of God that we have is authentic and even that, how do we know if it's authoritative or not? Because certainly if it's not authentic, it's not authoritative. And I had mentioned last week that my, my plan today was to, to basically give a lecture, a le- uh, um, an explanation of how we come to uh, have confidence in the Bible we have, a process known as lower criticism or textual criticism. Um, what I've decided is we'll do a little bit of that. Um, and then I actually want to give a defense for... Um, the authority and uh, authenticity of the Word of God as we have it. Just to really give us, to to bolster our confidence in the Word of God uh, that we have. Uh, I I was planning on doing a review of all of Mark. I think there's enough of Mark to review, obviously. I think we're going to do that next week. That'll be the plan for next week is a whole sermon just on the book of Mark. And then uh, we'll probably do some sermons on the book of Psalms um, in the weeks that follow. But today I want to again direct our, our attention to this, this ending of the book of Mark. and, and uh, this, is where I, this is really where I'm going in um, uh, you can call it a sermon. It's really more of a lecture today. And the first point I want to establish is that these verses are not authentic or authoritative, and there's external reasons to the texts. Um, they tells us this as well as internal reasons. And then we'll look at, uh, the fact that the Bible, though, that we do have is authentic and it is authoritative. And then finally, I want to examine, um, in light of uh, the authority and authenticity of the Bible, how does that affect preaching? And I th- so this, this has application not just for us as individuals, but even how a person approaches the te- uh, text and, and why sermons look the way they do often reflects a person's confidence in Scripture. And I want you to see that. So... I do think, as it's said often, that honesty is the best policy. And I think just to be honest, we need to be honest about the ending of Mark. It's dubious. Uh, That is verses 9 through 20. Um, And so let's look at that. Mark's ending, I don't think, is authentic or authoritative. And um, the, the reason we even have this issue really stems from the fact that we no longer have any of the original autographs, the original writings that the that the apostles themselves wrote down. They're gone. All we have are copies and of copies. And sometimes we have whole texts, but the majority of the manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that we have, are often just fragments um, that we, we call manuscripts. And so let me give you some important data to help with this. Uh, we pr- uh, possess approximately about 25,000 of these portions of The New Testament. This is just the New Testament, not the Old Testament. 25,000 manuscripts. Some are as small as a scrap of paper. Again, some are as big as books. Um, The earliest that we have in possession is dated from around 135 A.D. And so even then, that one would have probably most likely been a a copy of a copy of letters that had been distributed. Uh, I have with me, actually... A Greek New Testament. If you want to look at it, I was thought about passing it around, and I thought, oh wait, we're, there's a pandemic. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Um, but feel free to look at this if you if you if you so desire. This is a, a Greek New Testament, and if, if you can see it, these are all. This is this is um, the Gospel according to John. This is the Greek, and down here for every verse, it it lists the various uh, primary manuscripts for why they've come up with this reading. And so there's tons and tons of different manuscripts that they look at to determine uh, how each verse should read. Again, there's 25,000 for them to look at. Um, And in general, all of the manuscripts that we have are in remarkable agreement. Um, Most of the discrepancies, again, between 25,000, are discrepancies like spelling mistakes, a word added or a word missing. Um, And the biggest incongruity, the biggest discrepancy in all the manuscripts that we have is these 11 verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And so, again, there are both external and internal reasons for us to um, recognize that this was not a part of the original writing. So, external reasons. Let's consider these. Again, there is almost universal recognition amongst all scholars. I mean, there's, there's very few exceptions that these were not a part of the original. So this, is, this really isn't even much of an argument. I mean, there's more people that agree on uh, the, do, the five points of Calvinism. Um, or less people that agree on the five points of Calvin. How would I say that? You know what I'm trying to say. There's like a few people that disagree about the ending of Mark, whereas there's lots of people that disagree over all sorts of doctrine like Calvinism. Uh, the two most reliable manuscripts that we have, Codex Vaticanus, uh, which was written in about 325, it's actually a, a codex. A codex is, instead of uh, being a scroll of papyrus, uh, they, it, was, it was bound like a book. And that Codex Vaticanus, it actually contains the whole Bible. The, uh, the second most reliable manuscript is a codex called Codex Sinaiticus, and that is the entire New Testament. These are the most reliable manuscripts we have, and both of them omit these 11 verses. So that's pretty persuasive. Anytime you're reading the Greek Testament and it shows Codex Vaticanus and Codex Vaticanus affirming a reading, it's almost always the reading to go with. Also, other evidence. Early translations omit it. So again, you had translations from the Greek into other languages, such as Latin. Uh, 8,000... Of the Old Latin translations, which come from around the 300s, they omit it. You're not, you don't find this in the Old Latin translations. Uh, we have about 350 Sinaitic Syriac translations from the 200s. They omit it. A hundred of the Armenian manuscripts and two of the oldest Georgian manuscripts. Again, all translations. They all omit this ending. Also, early church fathers show no awareness of it, uh, particularly the Antonician fathers, the fathers that came before the Council of Nicaea, um, show no awareness that there was even a longer ending. Uh, Clement and Origen in particular, who were uh, in the 200s, don't show any awareness. Eusebius and Jerome, Eusebius was in the 300s, Jerome was in the 400s. They, they acknowledge that an awareness of this ending, these 11 verses but they say almost everybody, they, all the translations they know, omit it. So they're aware of it, but they also don't put much confidence in it. And so if you were in a detective uh, agency and you were investigating a robbery and you had to talk to eyewitnesses and interview them, you would uh, begin to, with, with interviewing those who were closest to the action. And if all the people that were 10 feet away said they didn't recognize the suspect, they didn't see that suspect take the purse that, he w- that was alleged, but then you interview people who are 100 feet away and they, and they are the ones that say, yeah, we think we saw that guy take the purse, you would, you'd be inclined to believe that maybe your suspect hadn't actually done what he's suspected of doing. You would tend to trust the judgment of those who are closer. And so there's many reasons to believe Um, externally, external from the manuscript, that it was not part of the original. There's also a number of internal reasons. And for this, I want to direct your attention back to verses 9 and 11 and just show you from the text itself why uh, it doesn't seem to fit. So first of all, the ending in verse 9, you'll notice, introduces Mary Magdalene, says that out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. It introduced her as if she's new to the story, but she's already been mentioned. We saw her earlier in the, in the chapter be mentioned. Well, if you're going to introduce her, this is the one Jesus cast out seven demons. You would have expected, expected Mark to do it then. Why mention her a number of times and then randomly note this point? When in the context, there's no reason to add this additional information. So that's questionable. Another thing is uh, Mark calls Jesus Lord. Um, that may not seem shocking, but this would be the only time in the gospel where he is called that by Mark. All the other times the, the Mark, the, 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 the writer, refers to Jesus, he just uses his first name. All the other times. Uh, the, the word Lord does come up a few times in scripture. It's still remarkably rare. And when it does come up, it's somebody, it's, it's in a quotation or it's a citation of another scripture. So this would be the first time that Mark decides to call Jesus Lord or, or refer to him by that title. Another thing, most of the content uh, in this longer ending, that's verses 9 through 11, is found in all the other gospels. And so it would make sense that somebody, not being comfortable with the ending as it was, since it was somewhat abrupt, decided to take information from uh, Matthew, Luke, and John and just some key points or maybe they just knew these things from uh, closeness with the, with the disciples or because this was, these were the, the information that had gotten passed down to them and they just pick and chose and kind of uh, presented it all together. There's really no new information here. Um, and so it, it, quite likely this was a scribe had inserted these uh, later on. Um, I like what one commentator said. He said the literary style reads more like a pious committee summaries of the post-Easter task and experience of the church than like the way Mark writes his gospel. In other words, it just sounds like a bunch of people have gotten together and decided what should we put in here, and then just kind of thrown it together like the the end of, like minutes in a in a committee meeting, and then presented this just you know, tack it on to the end. I think the most persuasive thing, though is a large number of new words are added uh, are here in Mark. And you guys know how um, economical Mark is with his words. He's very particular in the words that he uses. And it's really strange that nine of the 34 words in this ending are new. Nine of them. Never came up at all in the Gospel of Mark before. And then... um, there's an additional 18 words in that, uh, an, that shorter ending that, that I read at the very end. Uh, and if you combine the two of them, that's 52 total words in just this ending that are brand new to Mark. So just to kind of bring a little more color to this, this, this would be like hearing your 8-year-old child pray in Elizabethan English. For instance, if you heard them all of a sudden begin to pray... This prayer by, Jer- by Baxter, draw my soul to thyself by the, the secret power of thy love. As the sunshine in the spring draws forth the creatures from their winter cells, meet it halfway and entice it to thee as the lodestone doth the iron and as the greater flame attracts the less. If your eight-year-old would all of a sudden just start speaking like that, you would think, okay, either that was memorized, they're possessed, or something strange is really going on most likely you say, that's not authentic, This is because this is not the way this person speaks. And that's what it's like when you read Mark in the original language, and then you read this ending, it's like a whole new language. This is not how this person speaks at all. It's, it's immediately off-putting. It's suspicious. It doesn't seem authentic. Because we, we're familiar with how Mark speaks. So, both externally and internally, there's... This is why almost universally all scholars, again with some very few exceptions, recognize that this has been added later on. So it begs this question. Well, how do we know that the rest of the Bible is authentic? If we don't have any of the original manuscripts and we can't check for certain, how do we know that what is said is really authentic? Well, like I said, there's 25,000 manuscripts to compare with, which is greater than any other ancient document. It's actually without comparison. So let's look at some of the external reasons, external to the Bible, reasons to believe in the text that we have. Um, there, the first evidence of this is the jaw-dropping magnitude of, of the number of ancient manuscripts of the Bible compared to other ancient writings. First of all, the the, the other docu- other ancient document that is best represented uh, is the Iliad of Homer. We have 643 uh, portions of the Iliad of Homer. The newest, the, I mean sorry, the oldest that we have is from 1200. Now, if you if you're familiar with your Greek history. Homer wrote in 800 BC. That's a two millennium difference. So the oldest document of the Iliad is written is a copy from 2,000 years uh, from its original writing. And we have 643. That's the best represented. The next best represented ancient document is Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have 10 manuscripts of that. The oldest one, 900 years after the Gallic Wars was written. We have eight manuscripts of Herodotus' history. The oldest one is 1,300 years after that was written. And again, compare that to 25,000 of the New Testament. And then of that, 5,600 of the Greek. We have 5,600 Greek manuscripts. So 25,000 total copies in various languages and portions, but 5,600 from the from the Koine Greek. That's a ton to work from. And we even have some that are from just a century after those documents would have originally been written. So just based upon the sheer magnitude and the ability to compare these texts with one another, we can come to very firm confidence in what the original writers wrote. In fact, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said this, the vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99.9% accuracy. That's really high accuracy. I mean, it's unbelievable the comparison and the the reason we can't have confidence of the ability to reconstruct what the original authors wrote. The evidence is jaw-dropping. Second reason, uh, at least 95% of the variants are very insignificant. These are things like just the way a word is spelled or the order of a word. And it's it's usually not too difficult to to see where the error was made. 95% is fantastic agreement. Scholars have identified all of the variant readings. And they can provide clear explanations for which one is preferred. There's not real. They're not. There's not much. There's, again, there's just not much disagreement over readings. There's some, but re- usually that's very minor. And again, none of these variants affect any key doctrines. So it's just precisely did he use? Was it? What did he say? Uh, an anathema or a anathema? I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. Which should there should an, an extra letter be there or not? Um, the, 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 that's the kind of stuff. It's, it's stuff that most people would have no interest in. So we can have extreme confidence in the Bibles that the Bible we have in our hands is exactly what the New Testament writers wrote. It's authentic. But even if we know that the Bibles that we have are are Um, based off of uh, uh, an accurate representation of the original language and the the translation themselves is as close as possible to the original language and, and therefore what the authors would have intended, how do we still know that the Bible still has authority? Even if we can tell it's authentic to what the original writers wrote down, how can we still trust it? How do you know the Bible is more trustworthy, for instance, than your heart? I, mean, I think especially today, a lot of people tend to make their decisions not based upon factual evidence, not based upon even what authorities say, but based upon what they want to hear. It's really fascinating. You talk to people about what they what they think regarding what's going on in politics, um, what's going on in the racial tensions in our country or with COVID. Generally, everybody has an opinion. But most of the time, those opinions are not based upon really hard facts. They're based upon suppositions. And not surprisingly, they tend to line up with where people already are at. Very few people are persuaded. And there's reasons, there's lots of reasons for that. But why not let that same sort of logic affect the way we approach the Bible? How can, why should we trust what this book says? rather than what we want to believe. I mean, just think, if, if 95% of the people in the world were atheists, 95% didn't even believe in God, would you still trust the Bible? What if 95% of all scholars claimed that the Bible conflicts with their research? All these experts in, 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 in science, 95%. They all say, well, it just disagrees with what we found. Would you still believe the Bible? What if science and research confirms that it's impossible for the Red Sea to be split or for a man to live in a fish for three days? Would you still believe in those events? What if if they prove that a person cannot actually walk on water? Would you believe it? And the reason I ask these questions is because it gets to what do we really look to as our source of ultimate truth? Some people look to their feelings, their intuition. Other people just, I'm going to believe whatever this person in authority says. Other people look to science. If you can give me sensorial proof, something I can see or feel or taste or touch, something that my senses can confirm, I will believe it. We all look to something to to determine for us what is true well, why should we look to the Bible as our absolute authority? Well, I'll give you some internal reasons. We already looked at external reasons for the authenticity of the Bible. Let's look at internal reasons. And these are the three I'm going to give you. These are the three reasons you should submit to the authority of the Bible. First of all, the Bible itself claims to be absolutely authoritative. Secondly, the Holy Spirit confirms its authenticity. And then thirdly, the fact is the Bible is inerrant. And we'll look at each of those claims. First of all, let's look at the Bible's claim to be absolutely authoritative. Jesus says in John 17, 17, Thy word is true, speaking God the Father. Moreover, God is an absolute authority, and the Bible claims to be entirely inspired by Him. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is theafnustos. God breathes totally inspired by God those words come from him and he's the absolute authority it reflects what the authority wants to say furthermore John ten thirty five, Jesus exclaims that the scripture cannot be broken that is all the promises will come to pass there's not a single word of scripture that will fail every prophecy must come true all of it must be true and then in Matthew five, seventeen and eighteen, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away. But catch this not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all of it's accomplished. That's speaking to the the smallest marks in Hebrew letters, jots and tittles. Just portions of the letters, or the smallest letter. Not one of those will be taken away. In other words, even that the smallest portion is authoritative. Well, somebody, if they're thinking, will ask, wait a second. What you're telling me is I should believe the Bible because the Bible claims to be absolutely authoritative. I should look to it as my absolute authority because it claims to be the absolute authority. Joseph, that's circular reasoning. You're right. It is. Absolutely it is. But... Christians are not the only people to have to to face this issue. In fact, uh, um, if a person, any any claim to ultimate authority has to fall back on circular reasoning, or else it's not an ultimate authority. For instance, if a person believes that their reason, their ability to think, is uh, what they put most of their confidence in, what is their ultimate authority, The reason they believe that is because it seems reasonable to them to think that. That makes logical sense to them. That makes sense, therefore I'm going to fall back on my sense. It's circular. Or, if a person believes logical consistency is their ultimate authority, it's because it's logical to make it so. So, whatever you look to as your ultimate authority, there's a reason for it. And by nature of being an ultimate authority, has to be circular. There's no way around that. Or else it's not an ultimate authority. If it has to appeal to some other authority, whatever it appeals to is the ultimate authority. And so if there is an ultimate authority in there, uh, out there, you would expect it to say so, to, ha- to make such claims, to have such authority, which of course the Bible does. Unlike reason, unlike logic, unlike really anything else. And so the fact that the Bible claims to be absolutely authoritative is actually evidence that it is. Secondly, the Holy Spirit testifies to its authenticity and authority. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Tempting to want to exposit this passage, but we'll just read it and I'll just give a brief explanation. But this is its a critical passage for understanding how the Holy Spirit confirms... The authority of the Bible. Beginning in verse 12. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them, Because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And this is what John Calvin called the uh, inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a couple quotes. I think it's really helpful. He wrote, Therefore, illumined by the Spirit's power... We believe neither by our own nor anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God, but in other words, we believe above human judgment. We affirm with utter certainty, utter certainty, just as if God were gazing upon, sorry, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God Himself, that it has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. He says later. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit and witness of Himself in His Word, so also the Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into the hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaim what had been divinely commanded. Because until He illumines their minds they ever waver among many doubts. In other words, the same Spirit who spoke these words into existence, gave the prophets the words to speak, the apostles the words to speak, is the same Spirit who indwells every believer, and therefore when we read it, there's, a, there's an immediate familiarity that's beyond description. It's just, you know it, like, yes, this is true. The Spirit confirms with, there's an alignment. And this is affirmed in the Bible elsewhere. Jesus said in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then he goes on to say, But they will not follow the voice of a stranger. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And earlier he wrote, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's point is, you believed us because the Holy Spirit gave you eyes to believe and recognize you weren't just listening to a man teach whatever they wanted to teach. You recognized that they were speaking the very words of God because you had the Holy Spirit in you. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, and the Spirit within us confirms it as such. I think a, a good way to, to, to experience this or to recognize this is uh, to read one of the books of the Apocrypha. One of the, one of the books that um, people suggested should be part of the Bible. Um, various, uh, like if you, if you look at a, a Roman Catholic Bible, they'll have additional books than we have. Um, there's other additional books that were disputed. Um, probably one of the most disputed texts, one that ha- came closest to be included in, in the canon, was a was a, a book called the Gospel of Thomas. It was actually a Gnostic text, but many thought it it, it might should have been included with the rest of Scripture and recognized as Scripture. But to be honest, it 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 didn't. Um, and most of most people, most faithful Christians, even at that time, recognized this is clearly not Scripture. And if you read it today, I encourage you to do so, not because you'll be edified, but because you'll see the difference. I'll just read the very last paragraph from the Gospel of Thomas. And you can see how it just has a very different ring than the rest of Scripture. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That was one of the closest texts to be included in scripture. No, it's cherry picking, right? It's, it, that's I'll be I'll be honest. But again, I'm cherry picking from one of the more disputed texts, and it's not just because wow, you know, there's some confusion there. Um, when you read any apocryphal text, it's obvious uh, that. It just doesn't. It isn't even close to reading scripture. Thirdly, uh, another reason to believe in the authenticity and authority of the Bible is the Bible's inerrant. The, the word inerrancy means the Bible contains no errors. I'll give you a, a technical definition of it. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are shown, the scriptures and their original autographs—that is, the original writings—and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with, the doctrine of, with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. Thorough definition of that. I guess it's there. Well, how do we know, though? How do we know that there's no errors in the Bible? Because there's lots of people that claim they're errors. Well, I think as Christians it goes, first of all, back to the nature of God. Again, the Bible claims to be God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 And all Scripture, it says, not just that letter, not just the Gospels, not just the Psalms, but all Scripture is God-breathed. And if the Bible is read out by God, then it must be true because God doesn't lie. Titus 1.2 God who never lies promised these things before the ages began. Jesus also declared famously in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also said, a few verses later after making that declaration, He said, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all these things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, pointing to the fact that after Jesus leaves, there's still more to be known, there's still more to be written down. There's the rest of the New Testament, in other words. And the Holy Spirit will bring these things to remembrance, so that you can write these things down. And then in First John, sorry, Second Peter 1.20, it affirms that God, the Spirit, who is the agent of this inspiration of the New Testament, is truth. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Spirit. 1 John 5, 6. The Spirit is truth. And so if God is true, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, if they speak the truth, then what they write down must be absolutely true. So we know this based on the nature of God. Secondly, the Bible's assertion that even the smallest aspects of it are true. Jesus speaks about the absolute accuracy of all of Scripture. Consider Matthew 5.17 again. Not one jot, not one tittle, not not one iota, not one dot will fail to come to pass. Also again, John 10.35, the Scripture cannot be broken. Moreover, the way Scripture even speaks about other Scripture affirms its authority. There are instances where the whole argument in a passage rests upon a single word in another scripture. For instance, in Mark 10.36, we looked at this a few months ago, the way the use of the word Lord um, from uh, the the prophecy said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is making this argument to the, the Jewish leaders that David understood there was somebody who is a Lord above him, and so who is that Lord? There's also an instance where the entire argument depends upon the tense of a verb. Matthew 22:32, where Jesus said, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob." There's an instance where the point depends upon the singular as opposed to the plural. Galatians 3:16. 3, now the promises we're spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, unto seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. The point is, they're looking at the very the grammar of these things. Whether it's singular or plural, the, um, is it the tense of a verb. To show it's not just an idea that's the Word of God, but the very words themselves carry authority. The very grammar, the very nature of the Word itself. So if the text is not inerrant, it would also be really difficult to see the point of these arguments that Jesus is making. Because the Jews could well say, well, the Old Testament questions the text is questionable there. It may be wrong. I mean, all, of a sudden, all they have to say is just, just count, cast doubt upon the nature of Jesus' argument or the nature of the text, and the argument would fall apart. But the very point is they recognize the authority even of the grammar. Thirdly, there are no demonstrated errors in Scripture. There are no demonstrated errors in Scripture. Now, how do you prove this? Well, the fact is, there's lots of people that talk about, oh yeah, there's an error here, there's an error error here. But when somebody says there's there's errors throughout the Bible, just ask them, show me one. In fact, if you knew of any, it it would seem that Christianity would have fallen apart years ago. The fact is, there's not. There may be passages that are hard to understand, or how does this line up with this? But in every single instance, there is a very reasonable explanation. You don't have to do all sorts of philosophical jumping jacks in order to explain what, what what's, is hard to understand. Almost in, in every case, I'll say almost every case, in every case where there seems to be a discrepancy, the problem is not in the Bible, the problem is in the interpreter. Usually it's, we want the Bible to say this. We don't like what it says, so let's, let's make it say this, and then you have a problem. But again, the problem's not the Bible, the problem's us. There's just no errors. Somebody can say, well, what about the ending of Mark, well, again, that's easy. It's not a part of the original Bible. So, problems with denying inerrancy. This is another, this is worth, it's not really an argument, but it's worth considering. First of all, there's a moral problem. Because if you don't believe the Bible is inerrant, and therefore it would mean that it's okay for God to lie. And if it's okay for God to lie or to be untrue, and we're to imitate him, if we are to imitate Him, is it therefore okay for us to be untrue or to be deceptive? There's a trust problem. Well,. Can we really trust anything God said if any of it might be an error? I mean, why trust any of it? If we can't be absolutely certain that all of it is true. And then you just rely upon, well, you're going to believe what you want to believe. Which isn't very safe either, as you know from experience. And of course, there's an authority problem. Denying inerrancy eventually makes us the standard of truth rather than God. Which goes back to the propensity of all men to essentially do what they want. And they will then use the Bible no longer to submit to it, but just to defend what they want in the first place. We have this, the, the nature of original sin is that we want to do what we want. we want. We want to be the masters of everything around us. And if we can disregard the Bible, which is our greatest threat to our own, uh, autonomy and authority then we'll have succeeded in that task. And so even though there's very there's every reason to believe in the authority and authenticity of the Word of God frequently people just don't not because of reason or logic just simply because of, in their heart of hearts they just want to believe what they want to believe and do what they want to do. And I think at the end of the day we just got to be honest about that if that's where you're at. Well how does belief in the authenticity and authority of God affect preaching? I think this is critical to understand. and we don't, I don't talk much about this, but I thought just in light of this text, it could be helpful even to understand maybe why I chose even to explain this, but um, I think it would be helpful to understand how a belief in the inerrancy of God really affects the style of one's preaching. And I, and I say this because There's lots of preaching out there. You guys go on vacation. You go to visit churches or you listen online to lots of sermons. And and there's lots of good preaching out there. There's lots of bad preaching out there. But it's really helpful to listen carefully to um, and try to discern where this preacher's authority really lies. So there's really two primary approaches to preaching. One must ask, what is the role of the Bible in preaching? So these are two primary approaches. Is the Bible being used to defend the preacher's convictions and assertions? Or is the preacher being used to proclaim God's revelation and instructions? You need to ask, who is playing the lead role and who is playing the supporting role? Is the preacher subordinate to God, helping communicate what God has said? Or is the Bible being used to help communicate... And defend what the preacher says. See, those who hold to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture believe that their goal is to proclaim God's word because they, in fact, believe it's God's word. They believe it has authority, they believe it has power. And therefore, the goal is not to be cute, the goal is not to be funny, the goal is not to be seemingly relevant, but to be clear. Let the people know what God has said and the significance that has on their lives, the implications. Those who hold any other view of Scripture assume the Bible is there to help support the preacher. To defend his convictions. Preachers who do not hold the inerrancy and authority of Scripture will not look to Scripture as the ultimate authority in their sermons or in their church. Instead, something else the authority. It might be the preacher himself. Well, I got up this morning and this is what I wanted to talk about. Something like that. It might be a handful of other authorities, though. It, the actual authority might be the surrounding culture. Well, this is what's popular today, so this is what we're going to talk about. This is what the majority of people in Portland think. Therefore, that's, we're going to find how we can get the Bible to defend that. And then we can get people to come to our church and we'll get big and make lots of money. Not that they say that, but... Another th- authority might be Human emotion. In such a case, that the preacher will use the Bible to affirm what people already feel. I was just my son and I we, we flipped on, uh, TV, well the Trinity Podcast Network the other day, and we were listening to to a message. It wasn't terrible, um, but they always they're always curious what's out there. And uh, the, the the guy was just talking about our need to be loved. We need to feel loved, and like there was no word of God. It was just you've been here, you felt. You felt lonely. You felt this. You felt that. But all of their authority was coming from, he knew there are people out there that need to be loved. Well, no shock there. But somebody could easily feel like, wow, here's somebody that understands me. But again, not saying what God said, but just appealing to people's emotions. Or it might be money. The ultimate aim is what's going to get people to bring more income to this church so that we can build this institution and make us seem... Significant and credible. It also might be politics. Wherein the sermons will aim at using the Bible to defend defend one or more political views. And there's a number of churches that function that way as well. But we need to be honest that all of these things are more or less just manipulation. Using the Bible to defend one or other end the ends of another authority. And people who listen to such preaching are being duped into thinking they're learning about God. They really think this is God is speaking to me here when God's not speaking at all. They're being duped into thinking they're hearing from God when they're just hearing from politics, culture, their own emotions, or whatever else is the authority. And in such instances the tail is wagging the dog. So preachers who believe that the Bible is what's error. on the other hand, that it's absolutely authoritative, make their aim to make clear exactly what God has said. The goal is not what I want to preach on, it's what this text is saying. I'll give you a simple example. Last week, I preached on the resurrection. I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to preaching on the resurrection because of how much hope it gives us as believers. And here's a text about the resurrection. The problem was... That wasn't Mark's point. You, remember, you recognize he didn't really even describe the resurrection. Mark's point wasn't the resurrection, oddly enough. It was the women's response to the resurrection in contrast to Joseph of Arimathea, as seen as how it was structured. doesn't mean there was anything wrong with the resurrection, but as much as I would like to talk about the resurrection because it's such an encouraging doctrine, my goal is not to talk about what I want to talk about. But to to discern what is the point of the text and to try and make that clear, which is somewhat difficult. But if I don't do that, then I'm not faithfully fulfilling my task. And and this, this approach to preaching, to try and make the author's intent clear so that we know what is said, so that we know the implications on our life, is what's known as expository preaching. And this is the pattern of preaching modeled throughout Scripture. Just a couple examples. These are just a few. Nehemiah 8. They read from the book of the law, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And the goal of the preachers there were to help um, the, the, the congregation that was gathered to understand what was being said. Acts 8.4 declares that Christians who had been scattered went about preaching the word That is, they proclaimed what had already been revealed through special revelation. They preached the word. They didn't just get up and prophesy. They preached what had already been prophesied. Explaining it and calling people to respond in light of it. Paul also asserted to the Romans that the apostles preached the word of faith. They preached the word. They didn't just get up and talk about what they want to talk about. They explained what had already been revealed. Paul also made it very clear to his protege, Timothy, that his task was preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so the big old pattern of preaching, again, expository preaching, was such because the apostles and the prophets believed that what they had was actually the words of God. When you you think about that, the creator of the universe has made his will, his will crystal clear. Giving us everything we need to know for life and godliness. The last thing you'd want to do is want to interfere with that. Because you're not just talking about a topic. Like frankly I am today. Which is why this is so rare for me. to kind of have a topical sermon. But I'm trying to at least show you from scripture where this comes from. The goal is, what people need is not just more information. They don't just need more doctrinal education. That, that, that's what Sunday school is for. Those are good things from time to time. What we need is we need to hear from God and understand what God has said and what implications it has for us. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. We love singing that song because we've experienced it in our life. We love the Word of God. It's our greatest treasure. It provides us with absolute confidence in what is true. Um, it gives us clarity in what Christ desires. And therefore, the Word of God, is it's more than just a foundation for what we believe. It, we don't just look to the Word of God to tell us what to put in our doctoral statement or how we identify ourselves uh, over and against other churches and denominations. The Word of God is more than a foundation. It is the fuel, and, and not, not just the fuel, but the flame of our faith. The sacred flame of Rome was symbolized, symbolized the vitality of the city, and it was guarded by the vestal virgins, if you're familiar with Roman history. And the, the, the vestal virgins were, were virgins that, had, that were set aside to just really guard the sacred flame of Rome, and if they ever failed in their task, if the, if the flame ever went out, then their lives would be forfeit because it symbolized the life of Rome. They would bring inevitable destruction on the whole populace. So it was believed if the flame went out. And so they guarded it. And and the people in Rome held high expectations for these Vestal Virgins that they would be killed if the flame went out because they understood the importance of that flame. Well, all the more as Christians, this isn't based on mythology, but the objective, authentic, authoritative Word of God. The Word of God is even more precious than that. So, As Psalm 19.10 says, far to be more desired than gold, more than, more than honey on the comb. And it's truly eternal, as 1 Peter one twenty five says. And that's why I, I particularly feel a special responsibility to help you maintain absolute confidence in it. So I'll even veer off of an expository sermon just to give you a lecture, more or less, on why we can have absolute certainty in the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. We need to have confidence in it. And there's every reason to have confidence. So, let's give thanks to the Lord for His gift of His Word to us. Lord, I do pray that You would continue to strengthen the the faith of my brothers and sisters. Even as they consider the, the objective rational, logical reasons, both externally and internally, to trust Your Word, that they would be all the more devoted to it. And Spirit, I pray that You would continue to confirm the authenticity of Your Word as they read it, as their, as their hearts are rebuked and, and convicted and encouraged and strengthened, that they would, they would love it even as, as the psalmist loved it. And Lord, we thank You that You've made Your Word crystal clear that that it is easy to understand. We can look at the grammar, we can look at uh, the structure of how it's written. We can compare scripture with other scriptures and see how it flows together in a perfect cohesion, even though it's been written by a multitude of different authors spanning millennia of of time. Lord, your word is such a precious gift. And Lord we pray that you would preserve, the authority of Your Word in this church in the years to come, that we would not veer away from it for any reason, but continue to submit to it in all of what it teaches and all of what it explains. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.